Hi, this is Donna Otto, and we are Modern Homemakers. I come to you as the voice of Modern Homemakers, but there's a great team of people who provide services and resources and tools for you. If you haven't been to our website, which sings and dances, uh, please do so. A number of the items are being made available during this pandemic time to you with no charge, and I want you to listen to the few words I'm going to say about something I'd like to give you. Many of you have been listening for a long time, and I'd like to ask you to do us a favor. We'd like to invite you to make your friends our friends. And here's all you have to do. Invite your friend, whoever that is, as many as you like, actually, to listen to one podcast. And when they do that, on our website, you'll see where you can respond they would send us an email saying, I'm listening from Chicago, Illinois, America. That's all they have to do. And when you've invited just one, you have to send us your data, your hard mail address data. That's all. And we're going to send you a copy of this book of Elizabeth's, never before published, Suffering is Never for nothing. It will be a blessing to you. I'm going to talk about suffering in the next few months, so you'll be one leg up on the rest of us as you prepare for that. Remember that this is a time of encouraging you to encourage others to listen to us. And if you haven't subscribed to Modern Homemakers, please do so. We don't bother you or trouble you very often. You'll get an occasional email or some data or an offer, and this is the time when you're subscribing. Well, we've been talking about Home is Holy Ground for several weeks now, and I'm about to finish this series up. I must tell you, it has been a unique and wonderful experience for me personally. Part of that is David and I are still moving into our, what we think is our last home. Um, We've left our home six months ago, and we bought a smaller home, and it needed some attention, and we started the attention, and the pandemic came, and then we didn't get anybody to help us finish paying attention to it. And we moved in so we would have a place to shelter, and now we're trying to get these things done piece by piece and finish our home. So talking about home as holy ground has been a great reminder to me. And we've talked about the dining room and the kitchen and the doors and the four walls and that you and I are most often the thermostat of our house, not a thermometer that gets registering. It's hot in here. It's cold in here. It's mad in here. It's happy in here. You're the thermostat that we set to be peaceful and kind and generous. So now we enter the bedroom. The bedroom is a room full of beginnings and endings. We're conceived here. We're born here. We sleep here. And we die here. And as I was typing that, I thought, all of those things happen on a bed somewhere. We're conceived on a bed. We're born on a bed, maybe in a hospital. Used to be when we were born at home. We sleep here. And we die here. When my friend Bill Miller died, I said very cavalierly, if I get sick, honey, I want you to buy new sheets, one set for every day of the week, plump me up and send my friends in. I hear that in my voice now, and I'm I'm just chagrined 
what an idealistic notion, how idealized I had this picture of here I am, plump me up, send in my friends, and I will die here. When you are very sick and very ill and pain is great in your body, you're not so interested in what your sheets are like or who's sitting with you at the bedside. You're often interested in dealing with the pain and the suffering. I've heard hundreds of people in my lifetime say, I hope I die in my sleep. Why? Because it's a peaceful thing. You went to bed, fell asleep in the morning, you just didn't wake up. I've said to my family, and they still just, just guffaw. Well, I don't want to go to a funeral home, you know, when I'm gone. Now, I started that many decades ago because I want to get ready for everything. And I would say, I don't want you to send me to a funeral home. I want you to lay me out on the dining room table. And they would just, all, they would just gasp on the dining room table. I said, no, but I love the dining room table. And I'll be dead and gone on to heaven. And all my friends can come in or people can come. And then you'll be at home and everybody will be safe. And dad won't have to go anywhere. And mortuaries can be... They, of course, refuse to do that. I don't blame them, I guess, in some respects. Yet there is quite a lot of accuracy about we have lived and loved in our home. Do we need a mortuary to end our lives? I don't know. Maybe there won't be a mortuary, but maybe there'll be something else that will take the place of that kind of ending. Home is a place of beginnings, bringing our children home from the hospital, sending them off to school, I'll never forget sending Anissa off, Anissa who just turned 50 years old, sending her off to kindergarten, the first day of kindergarten, and I cried. I thought, this is the beginning of so many sending offs. But I had always cried when she was about two or two and a half, when she woke up one morning and said, I hate eggs. And I thought, you can't hate eggs. You're only two and a half years old. And I realized that even at two and a half, she was ending things and beginning things. That's what children do. They get ready to leave home. There are lots of endings. We send them off after school. We send them off after high school, college. We send them off to the comforts and surroundings of their own homes, marriages. They go and create their own. Our daughter and her husband have created a fun, simple welcoming home, one they both have wanted to live in. It's different than our home was. It's different than his home was. Except the grain die, it cannot live. The scripture tells us that. The consumption of love, the beginning of life, the graduation of the end of the studies and the beginning of is all very practical about beginnings and endings. It's physical. It's tangible. And if you don't think that the consumption of love is tangible and the beginning of life, well, then perhaps you might think about what God talks to us about when he talks about baptism. Everybody has a different way of baptizing, but is the death of one thing in the life of something new. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. A baby a few hours old is probably the most himself he'll ever be because he learns to accept what others desire for him. And in a healthy home, parents teach and train and help him to decide for himself what he will do for the rest of his life. I went recently to a backyard wedding. 
a wedding that was to be a big affair somewhere in a beautiful garden. It turned out to be a backyard wedding with very few people. The veil was lifted, and the minister said, you may kiss your bride. All the other connections, friendship, whispers, smiles, pledges, plans, desires, dreams, relationships, all of that stuff, all of that ethereal essential stuff, in that one moment, you may now kiss your bride, gave him and her entrance into this thing called physicality. This consuming love that God created in us that the flesh would become one. New beginning of one flesh. Their submission and surrender to one another. Their death, in a word, to the rights of their own independencies and privacies. I lay down my life for you. God laid down his life for us. Not one. And sometimes we read this and we say we are to become one and we mistake the fact that we are to become one like he is one or come one like she is one. No, 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 no. She will always be a she and he will always be a he. But we will become one. Our flesh has brought us together to become one that we might create new life. Why did God do this? So that we would propagate the earth. He told us to go out and propagate the earth. I, I, I just feel it's a joy laying down with someone you love and creating new together. I love to watch the parents' faces on the day their first child is born, or any child for that matter. It is all joy. It is all joy. There are beams, and I have been so privileged in so many young women's lives to be invited into their own lives at pregnancies and delivery days, and to invite and now into their children's lives. All is joy in that moment. There's nothing laying down. There's nothing difficult at all. But sometimes we can make that difficult because we don't want to accept the fact that we've become flesh, one flesh, and that this consuming love, especially if we don't feel we have consuming love, does, doesn't consume and love us anymore. And we don't feel that consuming love, and so we're not going to be together with that person. If we could only get it right, the first time would be very nice. But there is a breakdown in trouble, isn't there? There is the image of God smudged and marred. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, there are several verses, and I want to take the time to read all of these verses, seven or eight of them. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy, by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. We've just been talking about that when we talked about the bathroom. So as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Husbands were to love our wives as much as Christ loved the church. Lay down your life. That's what he's calling about. All these things we've done, all this, the bride and groom, all they had had, all the pledges and the dreams and the things they've been talking about, but they now, you may kiss the bride, they have become one, and the physicality begins. Did you ever watch 
a guy especially look at his bride as he's about to kiss her? You know what he wants to do right there in that moment, but he's holding himself. He's figured he's held himself this long. He's going to hold himself. In the same way husbands should love their wives as they do their own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one who ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, one more verse. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Now I have read seven verses. One more verse, and it's for the wife. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. A phrase, just a phrase, out of these lovely eight or nine verses about our husbands. Wives are to be subject to our husbands as to the Lord, but the husband is to make sure that he does these things. Now, I want to ask you, when your husband doesn't do these things, does that give you right to take back what you gave him? It does not. It does not. Do you want to go back to what I talked about the last time we were together? I want to run and hide. I want to pull up the covers right under my chinny chin chin, and the rest of that belongs to me. We mishandle the image of God. Eve did. We do. We snatch up the truth for some lie. I will be more like God, the serpent told Eve, and she believed him. I will be more like God. I will get my way, whatever I want. And the serpent was right. It would taste good. The apple or the fruit, whatever it was, had to taste good. After all, God made it. So if I'm missing the mark here, this is about sex. This conversation in the bedroom is about sex. We don't talk about it very often on this show, but I feel this urgency this time when we're so fraught with anxiety, the plan of God to use the intimacy of this relationship to bring two human beings together, not only in mind, in heart, in faith, but in flesh. It is fraught with love and beauty. It is also fraught with pain and refusal. It is rooted in God's plan of creation and speaks of how he does not meet my needs why should I meet his? The scripture tells us that we are to do this forsaking all others. Did you hear that? Forsaking all others, including ourselves. Ouch. That hurts because when I want to hide from my husband, I'm thinking about myself and not about him. And when a woman says to me, I don't like it. I never liked it. And believe me, in my years of meeting with women, I have met with hundreds of women on this subject and dozens and dozens of women who say, as soon as I'm through having the number of kids we want, I'm done. Now that is not God's plan. Yes, it is exclusive and private, and yes, it is privileged only for David and me. It's not just about the act of sex. But it is about forsaking all others, emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, and most certainly forsaking all others but your husband. Our culture has offered us another option. Our culture says it's just sex, 
I don't have to give myself to someone for one night of pleasure, do I? Now, that sounds so harsh to me when I say it aloud, but when I think of how many times I have seen that in a PG-13 movie, that very notion where they're just going into it for pleasure. There's nothing procreational about it. There's nothing giving of ourselves about it. There's nothing more than going into it for personal satisfaction. This is about setting apart. The scripture tells us the tabernacle and the sacrifices, the household, the special place where the work of the ministry was done, like your household, is setting apart. We set apart the bedroom. We set apart the activities in the bedroom. We don't do these activities in front of anyone else and not in front of our children. Then something breaks down. What? Why? Can it be fixed? I say, of course, but we have to go to the beginning and lay it out for ourselves and saying, is this about my personal happiness or did I vow to forsake all others? I don't know why all of you are listening. I feel so emotional about this in this day because I find our culture so busy looking out for themselves, so busy getting elected, so busy making a plan that will make them look good. And I see it in homes and families. David and I always answer when we are in a marriage session with a younger couple, when they ask the question, do you trust David or do you trust Anna? And we always answer the same way. I trust David as much as I trust myself. My eye will wander. His eye will wander. It's then when I take what God has called me to, the vows that I have made to God and to David. My husband always laughs about that time and he says, see another woman? Oh, that would only confuse me, and I can barely take care of this one woman. And I know that I honestly believe that's quite true. Now, I think I could handle someone better than David could handle another person. But it is this need for each other, you know. There's a ball and a, sto a socket, a pistol and a stamen. Not two pistols and one stamen. No, there's one of each. Some things to make something work, to make a flower. The union is in this drama of charity, this love that I have for God and for David, this self-giving my life for yours. And may I tell you, as David and I age and I get older, I say, oh, all of this changes and has a different flavor to it. In the ancient writings, including the Bible, a man knew his wife. That was how it was spoken of. Knowledge. Is that what happened when the bride and the groom went to the honeymoon suite? Heck no. They were not talking about knowledge and brain work. They were not doing that. Heck no, they tore off all their clothes and they did what all of us know they did and hungered to do. The flesh piece is very theological. And that is, if I said nothing else about the bedroom, you remember what I said. The flesh piece is very theological. We are flesh. Jesus came and lived in the flesh. He created us in his image in the flesh. And there will be the resurrection of the dead. Flesh matters. Physicality matters. If nothing else, we can remember our baptism and, and communion. That's very fleshly. Sexual union is a form of a knowledge 
a picture. We are pressing into the center. But conceiving is not the only thing that goes on in the bedrooms. No one can really get it. Biochemists, husbands, mothers, atheists have the slightest idea. We have a long time wanted to be the creators of life. Like we want to create it. Birth and death, we all have to do it. If you've never watched the series Call to Midwife, it is stark and startling, but beautiful. Where these births happen, in the circumstance they happen, and there is birth, and sometimes there is birth and death in the same bed. Sounds holy enough to make a temple, isn't it? But it's not a temple. The bedroom is not a temple. It's rather meat and potatoes, rather ordinary. It's a place where we go every day. So we should not spend so much time with it, but get on with it. We should not be talking so much about what goes on in the bedroom. We should just get on with it like ordinary meat and potatoes every day. It's a routine like all routines, bathing and eating, cleaning and working and making love. Don't spend so much time thinking and wishing and liking or not liking or pondering or looking at your navel or the significance. Don't let that stuff stop you. Infants don't have a choice, do they? Neither do we. We came out of a dark place to a cold, nosy place. If we get over it, we should be able to also recognize that there is life and death. If you, that child, that infant you were, were left in the womb, you would die. But by giving birth in that warm, cozy place and coming out into the cold, nosy place, you come from solitude and dependency into company and dependency. Can you sense the rhythm of exchanged life? In the beginning, when an infant cries, you come because they cry. But as mothers, you know that has to be trained out of them or else they are selfish, entitled people. And out into mutual dependence taught more about the exchanged life principle. We are taught early to say, thank you, and often. Parenting is all of these things jumbled together, but the goal is the exchanged life. No more demanding and screaming for someone to come and do whatever I want. You can see where this entitled culture comes from. Soon we see our grandmothers or our teachers praying and teaching and sacrificing and paying the price. And if you haven't heard the reading of a commencement speech that I read last week um, that Elizabeth Elliot gave in 1974, it's a marvelous description of what happens to us from the womb when we come out screaming and demanding and we walk down the aisle of a commencement. It is Jesus at Golgotha laying down his life for me. Joy, 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 my life for yours. Yours for mine, mine for ours. What we do is love. So we love in the bedroom. We conceive in the bedroom. We rest in the bedroom. We are practicing for the last sleep. We are frail and we need to restore. No exceptions, no exceptions to this. You can't be queen enough or king enough or Genghis Khan enough to miss any of these steps. It's work and play, mountains and valleys, hot and cold, black and white, giving and receiving, sun and shade, day and night, all of it calling us. Our strength is renewed. 
We die in this room. We return to the mess that we came into. Should there be trumpets and pomp and circumstance? There isn't. Usually it's rumpled and faded, dressed in our pajamas. We struggle to get here and we struggle to get out of here. My grandmother, down to skin and bones, not able to remember her name, but holding my hand in the hospital bed, struggling to get home to Jesus. We leave our brush on the dresser and our books on the nightstand. That's what the bedroom does for us. So I can't end the show without a couple of practical things because I've been so theoretical. Give it some order. Give it some cleanliness. Keep it a bedroom, not an office or a playroom. Make the noise go away. No TVs and computers in the bedroom, please. Make it a tender, quieting place. In the kind of beauty, whatever you and your husband enjoy. If it's ruffles or lace or aluminum and leather. Make it a place that you and your husband call your own. For those of us in faith, we go to marriage and to the bedroom and to death in the same way that we come to life. It is still made up of charity. A mother and a father, a husband and a wife, loving one another to give birth to us. Ours to give and receive and ours to give and give and give. It is the mystery of the bedroom. I'm Donna Otto, and this is Modern Homemakers. Thank you for listening to this very long podcast. I hope it has encouraged you to remember that the common begin and the uncommon finish. Be very uncommon today and change your habits in your bedroom. <laughs>